last month, we celebrated Holy Week. Right? Holy Week is this time that we, we remember the journey of Jesus, which begins at the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that Palm Sunday, what we, what we call Palm Sunday, and, and kind of culminates with, with Resurrection Sunday, the following Sunday. Midway through the week, we encounter uh, Maundy Thursday. I made that joke before. Growing up, I used to think it was Monday Thursday, and I was really confused as a kid, but it's Monday Thursday. Uh, it's the day that we remember Christ's meal with his disciples, where he instituted the, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, communion, whatever you might call it. Right? We remember Good Friday, the day that Jesus suffered and died, a day that, uh, again, seems misnomed. Uh, it's far from good when the Savior of the world was killed, but we remember it good because of the victory that Jesus provided for us. It was good for us that Jesus suffered and died. And then two days later, Resurrection Sunday, when Jesus triumphed over death and rose from the grave. Now, stuck between, I mean, Good Friday and Easter Sunday are, are two days that pretty much anyone in the church is going to celebrate. But depending on how high your liturgy is, right, churches that are, you know, like Baptist churches, for instance, are low liturgy, Roman Catholic, Anglican, are more higher liturgy, those higher liturgy churches celebrate something that they call Holy Saturday. It's the, the day between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And, and in those traditions, it is a day of waiting. Waiting for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that it's coming, right? We, we, we live 2,000 years after these events, so we know what is coming that Sunday. But it's a day of waiting for us. But it begs the question is, what was Jesus doing during that time? So this morning, I want to try to provide some answers to that question. And I want to prepare you. This might be a, a, a little bit of a doozy. Right? We're going to be wading into realms that we think that we're familiar with. But typically, our understanding of life after death has been highly shaped and influenced by, by cultural perspectives of the afterlife. More so at, from at, at times than what the Bible actually has to say about it. And so this morning, I want you to throw, it out, throw out everything you thought you knew about the afterlife. Right? Try to approach this discussion with some newness and curiosity. And take everything I say with a grain of salt, because I'm, I'm talking about things that are way above my pay grade, uh, trying to interpret things in Scripture that can be mildly confusing. So take it with a grain of salt. But, I, but hopefully I, I give you a reason to, to trust what I have to say. So let's start with how the creed describes it. So this morning... We're going to look at the phrase, he descended, he being Jesus, descended to the dead. We've been looking at the Apostles' Creed. I forgot to say that at the beginning. That's where this all kind of comes from. And so many, many traditional uh, reciting, recitations of this creed, uh, this is where they say he descended into hell. Growing up in a Presbyterian church, that's, that's how we said it uh, in my church. And I don't favor that translation as, as you're going to see in a few minutes. So he descended to the dead is what we're studying today. And, and what our practice has been over the last couple of weeks is, um, you know, we, we think about the Apostles' Creed as, as a, um, a kind of a litmus test for faith. It, it gives us some parameters for who God is and who we are. And so uh, we're going to together, as we learn it, we're going to recite what we know of the Creed together, and then we'll begin our investigation of what it says. And as always, the words will be on the screen. So I'm going uh, to invite us to share it together um, out loud in unison. So friends, what do you believe? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. 
He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. All right, so this final clause that describes Jesus' descent to the dead, it's not original to the creed. It first appeared uh, right around the 4th century in a version of the creed from a, a church father named Rufinus. Uh, I, don't, I don't know anything else about Rufinus other than this is his name, claim to fame. Is, is his translation, his version, had this clause in there. And then it disappears for about 300 years, coming back again in the 7th century. Now, Wayne Grudem, who uh, wrote a systematic theology textbook, suggests that when Rufinus, because uh, what it says in Latin is basically that he descended into uh, infer infer infernia, right? Like the Latin word, what we would translate as hell. That's where they get that. And, and Wayne Grudem suggests that the version didn't mean that Jesus descended to hell as like a place that Jesus went. But instead, he argues that it's just saying what happened, restating what happened right before, right? That Jesus, having died, descended to the grave. That's how he argues it. Um, so I have three things in this clause that I want us to consider. First, I want to briefly touch on what the word descended means. What does it mean that Jesus descended to the dead? Secondly, I want to try to answer the question, this is where it's going to get a little heavy, where did Jesus go during that Holy Saturday? And then we're going to follow that up with another question, what did Jesus do during this time? And then lastly, we'll close up with some application as we usually do. So buckle up because uh, we'll see, I think it's going to be a little bit of a ride. So the, the clause of the creed states that Jesus descended to the dead. And so descent here seems to indicate a spatial reality, right? We use the word descended to talk about an action, like walking down the stairs, right? You descend the stairs. Or an airplane beginning its descent is preparing to move from the air, up in the air high, down, lower, back to the ground. And so a superficial reading of this could lead us to believe that Jesus is, what's happening here is he is shifting his physical location of where his presence was and doing so in a downward direction. However, where, wherever Jesus was and whatever he was doing, this word of descended, I don't think, gives us a sense of the place where that was happening. Right? It doesn't mean that Jesus was doing this like under the earth, because I think that's what often comes to mind. And that's probably why in, in the, kind of the ancient world, uh, you know, there, there was kind of a mix-up between like, the spatial reality of like, the dirt under our feet and, and kind of this... Uh, uh, reality of, of dimensional reality, I guess is what we'll call it in the language that we use in this day and age. Because instead, what descent means, it, it's a language of worth and dignity. Right? Ephesians 4, 8 to 9 says this. Paul's quoting Psalm 68 and then provides some explanation. He says this, uh, Ephesians 4, 8 to 9. Therefore, it says, when he, Jesus, ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Paul continues, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now this passage is often used to describe the descent of Jesus into hell, but I don't think that's what this passage says. It displays a shift from Jesus moving from the heavenly realms, descending 
to the earthly realms, right? Going, what we understand in the incarnation, going from heaven to the earth, taking on human form. Now, heaven is a place where God dwells, but we know it doesn't, it's not directly above us, right? It's not a matter of direction in this. It's not that Jesus or that, that God is in the clouds or that God's in space, but it's a recognition that the authority the value, the worth of the location of God is above that of ours. So therefore, that's the language of ascent and descent. So when we talk about Jesus' descent, it doesn't mean a location of where he traveled to, but rather that it's a lower plane of existence, you could argue. So in that, I want to try to answer the question, where is it that Jesus went during that time? Grudem argues that he was just in the tomb, but I find that inadequate, right? Like, I I don't know, Jesus just hanging out there, you know, twiddling his thumbs, waiting for Sunday, being like, all right, only two more hours, then then I can rise from the dead, right? Like, that's just, that's what his activity is. And there's a possibility, like I said, take everything I say with a grain of salt today, because I'm definitely wading into uh, um, territory that can be, be troublesome, not troublesome, but can be confusing. But I think the Bible does give us some clarity if we piece together different passages in scriptures. But for us to understand it, I think there's some terms that we need to define, right? Some terms that comprise this historical backdrop of the afterlife as the New Testament was formed. So I've got three words that I want to define for you this morning that I think will give us some understanding of what's going on in this this language of the creed. The words are sheol, which I cited in that psalm earlier, Psalm 116, I think it was. Hades is the second word, and the third word is Gehenna. Sheol, Hades, and Gehenna. And I'm I'm willing to bet that possibly two of those three words you've never heard before. All of these terms are places that are used to describe facets, different perspectives, different components of the afterlife, what happens to us when we die. Right? Our bodies, our physical presence, our physical reality may stay here in the physical ground. Right? We be- go, you, know, you can go any- anywhere here in Allegheny County. You've got cemeteries all over the place. There are bones of people who live that still are here on this earth. But what happens to our soul? I'm going to use soul and spirit somewhat interchangeably today. They're not necessarily, but just for the sake of trying to provide some simplicity in this. What happens to our soul, that eternal ethereal portion of us. Where does it go when we die? In our current culture, the culture that we live in, we have two locations that we think of that our soul or spirit goes when we die. And they're diametrically opposed to one another, right? You, you want to go to heaven and you want to avoid hell. Heaven is that place of bliss and joy. And this is where some of the cultural elements of, you know, we, we get, uh, you know, wings and we have little halos and we play on harps in the clouds. Uh, I see cartoons that depict that a lot. Um, hell, instead, is a place of torture. You know, if you watch a, a movie like Event Horizon, you know, they give, like, maybe little snapshots of what that might look like. But these modern categories are a fra- far cry from the ancient, under- like how the people in Jesus' day would have understood. They wouldn't have understood heaven and hell like that. In the Old Testament, the primary place for the dead was used by, it was described by the Hebrew word Sheol. In Psalm 16, 10, David writes this. He says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol 
or let your Holy One see corruption. In the Hebrew understanding, this is where people went when they died. Job, also speaking about this, in Job 17, 13 says, if I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness. See, Sheol in the Old Testament was thought of as the opposite of heaven, but not in the same way that we separate heaven and hell. Right? We separate heaven and hell as the good place and the bad place. But instead, in the Old Testament, heaven was where God dwelled, and Sheol is not. Now, that doesn't mean that Sheol was ultimately bad. It wasn't necessarily a favorable place to be, but it wasn't this place of torture, the lake of fire, all those kinds of language that, that we have kind of read into it through, through our culture. Think about it instead a little bit more neutrally, like a holding place for the dead, right? Both the good and the bad from the Old Testament went to Sheol. They went preparing for God's final judgment. In the passage that I just read, David and Job look forward to the day knowing that Sheol won't be their final resting place, but they acknowledge that there's going to be a stint that they have in it. Now, if we apply what we know from the New Testament, the necessity of Sheol does make sense. We know that our salvation is not by anything that we've done. We can't work our way into heaven. Again, that's another one of those myths that the culture has kind of thrown, uh, you know, mix the gospel with the culture. If we just work hard enough and pull ourselves up by their bootstraps, then maybe I'll do enough for God to let me into heaven. There is nothing we can do to get God to let us into heaven. Jesus Christ is our victory. And because of Jesus, when we trust in him, every bad thing we've ever done and ever will do are washed away and we are given credit for Christ's life. So we only get into heaven kind of on the coattails of Jesus, if you will. So as a result, if that's what we understand that the New Testament teaches, which I believe that it does, how is it that people who lived and died before Jesus saved? How about all those saints in the Old Testament that you read? How, did, how were they saved? Jesus hadn't walked the earth yet. Genesis tells us that Abraham, the, the patriarch, one of the first, uh, not the first, but one of the first people who's really called out in the book of Genesis. He starts in Genesis 12. Genesis tells us that Abraham was considered a righteous man, not because he was the epitome of morality. Frankly, he was not. He lied twice and tried to pass his wife off as his sister to save his life. Like, th there were a number of things that he did were, that were a little bit um, uh, below board. The reason he's credited as righteousness is because he had faith in God. He, the same way that we have our credit as righteousness, we have faith in Christ. He trusted God's provision for him, looking forward to the day of Jesus Christ, even though he didn't know, he wouldn't, he didn't know Jesus Christ by name at that time. But he looked forward knowing that God was going to come through to provide for him somehow. So hopefully you can see the need for a place like Sheol, a holding cell for someone like Abraham, who would receive Christ's blessings through faith, but also you have uh, someone like King Manasseh, who was one of the Judah's most wicked and heinous kings, sacrificed his kids, like, terrible guy. There was a place he needed to go to in order to be prepared for that judgment day for him to face God's wrath. And so these spirits... I would argue that the Bible teaches and the Old Testament teaches were waiting in this place called Sheol, waiting until Jesus accomplished his work on the cross to be sifted into the appropriate places. 
That's the backdrop of the Old Testament. Now, by the time that Jesus came to the scene, heaven as an afterlife began to, to be more formed. There's some shifts in understanding. It wasn't universal, though, because we see in Scripture at the time when, when we see Jesus encounter the religious leaders in his day, uh, there was a group of them called the Sadducees, you might remember. The Sadducees are defined in Scripture as not believing in the resurrection of the dead. They don't believe in, a, in, in any kind of afterlife. You get what you get and you don't get upset kind of thing. But around this time, the Greek and Roman cultures began to root themselves in the area around Israel. And so their philosophy started to kind of come into to things, their language and their traditions and their culture. And so a generation before Jesus Christ, there were a collection of rabbis that put together a Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. Now, many Jewish people of this time had been driven out of the Holy Land, of Israel, and, and so they had, you know, they'd been scattered, and some of them may not have known Hebrew, and so it was important for them to have Greek. Basically, everybody spoke Greek in the ancient world um, around the time of Jesus, and so it was important for them to have their texts, their holy scriptures, in a way that they could understand them. I mean, think about it like this. Like, the Bible is written, the Old Testament in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek. How many of you can read Hebrew and Greek? I studied it for two years and I still can't read it, right? So it's important for us to be able to open our Bibles written in English so that we can understand the special revelation of God of who he is. So this is what they did. It was called the Septuagint. They translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek so they could understand it. And when they did so, they took the Hebrew concept of Sheol, which is a Hebrew word, and translated it with the closest Greek word of a similar context, which is the word Hades. Now, if you know any Greek mythology, you might know that Hades was one of the Greek gods on the Pantheon, you know, brother to Zeus. He was also, you know, lord of the underworld. And Hades also was kind of, it was his name as well as the name of his domain. Now, when used in the New Testament, right, because the New Testament authors wrote in Greek. I know this is heady. I'm sorry. But hopefully, hopefully I'm, you can follow along. When it was used in the New Testament, Hades could be a synonym of Sheol, this holding place for the departed. But Hades, according to Greek and Roman kind of mythology, was also a place of torment, kind of like what we would think of in our modern understanding of hell. Right? The parable that Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus, who was considered righteous, dies and goes to this place called Abraham's bosom, which I'm not going to complicate it by bringing that into trying to define that. But it, just think about it. That's paradise. It's a view of paradise. But the rich man who spurned God is tormented in Hades. So here you see, Hades could be a holding cell for the dead, but it could also be a place where the wicked are separated from the righteousness, righteous to endure torment. Okay. Hades could mean either of those things. So you can probably see why it's really hard to nail this down with precision. Now, just to, com to complicate matters further, there's yet another Greek word which most closely resembles our modern understanding of hell. It's a word that's translated as Gehenna. Now, typically, actually, when Jesus talks about hell in the scriptures, it's not the word Hades that he used. Every now and then he does. But the more typical word that he uses is Gehenna. Gehenna is a Greek word that is basically transliterates, they kind of make it, make it up, create it based off of a Hebrew word that describes this, uh, this valley outside of Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom. Now, this valley was basically a constantly burning fire dump. Now, um, I, I was a child of the 90s. I grew up watching The Simpsons uh, after school. 
And, and if you're familiar with their cartoon Springfield, you know, they have this part of town that's just called the Springfield Tire Fire. Now smelled in 46 states. That's, they almost got the whole continental U.S. there, right? So, I, I, and I don't, know, I don't know why you would build the, the, the fence in, out of wood. It seems like a poor way to kind of keep this in here. Um, but, you know, it's, it's the town's eyesore. Not distract anymore. It's the town's eyesore, right? This is, this, like, think about, if you ever watched The Simpsons and you saw that, like, that's kind of what Gehenna was like, right? It's, it's the eyesore, it's that trash dump on the outskirts of town that nobody wanted to go to. Some speculate that it was also viewed as cursed because it may have been where some of those wicked kings of Israel sacrificed their children. It wasn't until the 17th century that this became the image that was evoked when people would discuss hell, like when we talk about the lake of fire which there's not a whole lot about that until, I mean, Jesus talks about it a little bit and then at the very end of Revelation. So that's, that's Gehenna. All right, I was going to talk about the abyss. We're not going to talk about the abyss. That just is going to complicate things more. So, all right, we've got three, we'll keep it simple. Three primary words. Sheol, the Hebrew place of the dead, a holding cell, if you will. We have Gehenna, the place that souls go for eternal punishment. And then the term Hades, which could connotate uh, one side or the other, depending on how we're using it, right? Sheol being more semi-neutral, Gehenna being uh, an unpleasant term. So the question is, where did Jesus go when he died? Did he go to Sheol? Did he go to Hades? Did he go to Gehenna? In my opinion, Jesus descended to Sheol. I think this is the most natural place for him to have gone, right? Between his death by crucifixion and his resurrection. Now, Peter, I think Peter makes this link. We studied uh, January, I don't know, like, um, I don't know, second Sunday in January, we studied Pentecost. They all start speaking in tongues. The crowds come along. Peter gives this huge speech. 3,000 people come to know Jesus that day. Well, part of that speech, Peter says this, Acts 2, 24 to 28, speaking of Jesus. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord, so he's quoting a psalm here, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Right? That's what the Greek word that's used there, and that's how they translate it. But if I cited that psalm earlier, it was Psalm 16, which is the word Sheol, right? He, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. For you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Right? So Peter is saying that Jesus Christ was sent by God to loosen the cords of death. Right? The, 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 this idea of cords of death, chains that, that surround us, that's a metaphor that's often used in the Old Testament for Sheol. That these cords encircle and bind us and they, they trapped us. Hopefully you also saw, you know, as I, I cited Peter's citation of Psalm 16. So I think that this points to that Jesus is doing something in Sheol to break these, these bonds of death. So if Jesus went to Sheol, what exactly was he doing there? And I've got one suggestion that I think the Bible points to, and then I have a potential second encounter, depending on how, what, how we're doing on time and how complicated I want to get, if I even want to open that can of worms. So primarily, if Jesus, if Jesus, which I think he did, if Jesus went to Sheol, right? Because if, if, if that's the holding cell for the spirits of the dead, Jesus is a physical human being. He was God, but he was fully man, as we saw a couple weeks ago. If he died, 
Where's the soul spirit going to go? To Sheol, like Abraham, like Job, like Manasseh, like all of them. I think primarily Jesus is going to Sheol to perfect the Old Testament saints. Right? Remember I said that, that kind of conundrum. It's like, what do you do with all these people like Abraham who died, but Jesus hadn't lived yet? Hebrews eleven thirty nine to 40 says this. He describes these Old Testament saints uh, who's, you know, they're credited to righteousness because of their faith. But it says this, and all of these, all these saints, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Right? That seems to indicate that they hadn't received kind of the presence of God since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, this, this might be a little confusing. Let me try to break it down for you. But it implies, as I just said, that at the time of their death, these Old Testament saints like Abraham or David did not receive the fulfillment of their promise. The second verse indicates that now, under the new covenant of Jesus, they have received the same reward that we have through faith, perfection. Right? Sheol, so, so they now have been made like what we are able to have because we are found in Jesus. So Sheol was this place that no one could escape of their own accord or will. And so Jesus victoriously conquered the grave and carried the spirits of those long waiting to be perfected and ushered them into heaven to be in the presence of God. Two weeks ago, my family watched a 90s film, The Prince of Egypt. It's a DreamWorks cartoon. It's got a star-studded cast. It's about the story of Moses as found in the book of Exodus. If you're familiar with the story, you know, God brings that final plague, the Passover, to Egypt. Pharaoh's like, fine, you guys can go, get out of here. And so they're finally freed from their slavery. But after, you know, wandering out, out of Egypt a little bit, the Pharaoh, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, changes his mind and he musters his army to hunt down these runaway slaves. And so they're trapped between Pharaoh's army in front of them and the Red Sea at their backs. And as we know in the story, that's when God parts the sea. There was no way out for them. They couldn't do anything on their own at that point. It was death by drowning or death by the hands of Pharaoh's army. But God parts the sea and allows them to walk through dry ground. And I love, this is one of my favorite scenes in the cartoon because, you know, very rarely do we imagine what that would have looked like to have this narrow path with a hundred foot high walls of water you could see like a little whale. I don't know if there are whales in the, in the Red Sea, but you can kind of see this like whale, you know, lightning's crashing, you know, they make it very dramatic. God powerfully delivers them out of their bondage, something they couldn't do for themselves. And what we see in the Old Testament is that the act of the Exodus, this act of God bringing his people physically out of slavery into Egypt is a foreshadowing of so much in Scripture. And here, too, it's a foreshadowing of the spiritual deliverance that God provided through Jesus Christ. Because once again, God's people were trapped in a situation of death that they could not handle on their own. And they patiently waited for God to deliver them. Jesus breathes his last on the cross, commends his spirit to the Father's hands, and he descends to Sheol, joining countless other followers of God. But the difference is Sheol has no power over Jesus Christ. Jesus broke the figurative bonds that ensnared, ensnared his people and he boldly leads them out of despair. 
right? Jesus is the second Moses who was able to deliver his people not just from physical slavery against an Egyptian king, but against the spiritual sting of death itself, joyfully escorting them into the presence of the Father. But this wasn't just for people like Abraham and Moses and those who were dead for thousands of years. Remember that thief on that cross next to Jesus? Jesus was crucified next to two thieves. The thief is there hanging there. He's dying somewhere else in scripture. They kind of accept their fate knowing they deserve it. So this is clearly not a stand-up guy. But the one thief asks Jesus, he kind of comes to his senses and says, Jesus, will you remember me when you enter your kingdom? I know there's something special about you. And I, it, maybe it's too late for me, but I want a piece of it. And what does Jesus said to him? He says, truly, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. That's all the thief had to do. Even those who had been dead for mere minutes were ushered into paradise together because Jesus broke the, the, the bonds of the grave of Sheol. All right, I'm just going to read this passage. Um, this is the one that might complicate things a little bit. But I think it also gives us, it, I think it supports what I just said. This comes from 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20. Books of First and Second Peter are really hard to interpret and understand. But it says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. We get that, right? He's, he was righteous and suffered for on our behalf the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few persons, that is eight, were brought safely through the water. Now, I, I like this passage because I think it supports what we just said, that the spirits who were imprisoned in Sheol, who the bonds of death held them fast, that Jesus came, preached to them, and broke those bonds. Now, Peter does, some scholars argue that this has to do with kind of angelic fallen angels and there's always a possibility that I have a, a parallel passage, 2 Peter 2.4, which I don't think is saying the same thing. I don't think it's necessarily, I don't think we have to read those in parallel. Um, but it talks about, you know, God not sparing angels, but casting them into hell. Although the word that, that uh, Peter uses for hell is the word Tartarus. It's the only time in the whole New Testament that that Greek word is used. Uh, Tartarus is, um, it's a special chamber of hell used for torment. And it seems to be used kind of like an abyss, which I didn't talk about earlier, but they seem to be reserved in the scriptures for angelic beings, right? It's the place, the abyss is the place where um, the destroyer and the beast in the book of Revelation come out of. So I don't think that Second Peter 2, 4 passage has to do with what's going on in the First Peter three eighteen that I just said. I know it's getting a little confusing. I'm going off my notes, but I'm trying to make it as simple as I can. Right, Christ goes and... Uh, is, is, preaches to those who had been dead in Sheol. That's what, I, that's what I'm arguing for tonight. So I want to, I want to lay, it, lay that all out for you. Right? Jesus' soul, in my opinion, departed to Sheol as other humans since the beginning of time, but because he was sinless, because he was God incarnate, Sheol could not keep him down, but opened up the grave to his own resurrection, freeing those who had long been bound and who now had a hope of eternity with God. And so that leads us, I'm almost done wrapping up. This leads us to our real simple Real short, our one and only take-home for today. I know this was really heavy. This was a deep theological study of the concept of the afterlife, but it was abstract. We talked a lot about terms. We talked a lot, you know, very kind of out there. 
concepts, where the rubber meets the road for us is that death is something that each one of us is going to have to face, asterisk, unless Jesus comes back in our lifetimes. But there's a high likelihood, I'll say this, if Jesus does not come back in our lifetimes, maybe I should have phrased it that way, this is something that all of us will have to face. I don't care how old you are, how wealthy you are, what race or ethnicity you are, if you smoke a pack a day or you've never smoked in your life, if you eat purely organic food or feast on junk food, whatever, however you live your life, death has a 100% fatality rate. It does. There are a couple people in the Old Testament that uh, uh, didn't die but ascended to heaven, uh, Enoch um, and Elijah. But, uh, you know, even if you take those two out of billions of people, we can still 100%. We'll go with that. The truth is we can face death knowing that we are not alone. We affirm statements like this in the creed that Jesus descended to the dead because it provides hope for us. It shows that Jesus has... I could be totally wrong on all this stuff about Sheol. You might be like, Pastor, that was too much for me. It went in one ear and out the air. That's okay. I don't, I don't necessarily know that you have to understand all the intricacies of that to understand this point, that Jesus has gone before us, that Jesus faced death and he has paved a way for us to be with God. Jesus has been there before us and he's gonna see us through it. So as a result, death is something that I don't, I wanna encourage us not to fear. Because of Jesus, it doesn't have a hold on us. It doesn't have the last word in our lives. In our culture, there's something final about it, right? If, if we're just a clump of cells that over a billion years evolved to be this, then sure, there, where's the hope in that? There is no hope. You live, you die. You become the next person's fertilizer, right? But if God is real, and if God has sent Jesus ahead of us, then that gives us, that's the, the difference between hope and no hope. J.I. Packer put it this way. He said, death without Christ is the king of terrors, but death with Christ loses the sting, the power to hurt it otherwise would have. Paul similarly said in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So together we affirm this part of the creed because we put our, full, our trust in the full experience of Jesus Christ. He faced death just like we all will, that little asterisk that I said earlier. And through his death and through his descent to the dead, he broke the cords that bound us that they don't have any power over us anymore. Because of Jesus' descent, we will ascend under the power of of his blood to live with God eternally. Join me in prayer. Lord, um, there's so much in that. I pray that the words that I have uttered this morning would be in alignment with your truth and the scriptures. But I pray for your grace that if there are any places where I overstepped bounds of truth that you would uh, just cause us to forget those things. May you guide us in not just illuminating these passages, but reinforcing the truth behind them in our lives. 
that death doesn't have the final word. I know, just like that father of the boy, demon-possessed boy, when Jesus says, just have faith, just believe, and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Sometimes death is one of those things that I need that, I have a little unbelief that I need you to cast out and give me more belief. Lord, may we hold fast and persevere to your truth, holding in alignment with countless saints, millions and millions of saints before us who have passed from this world to the next and have been able to greet you face to face. But we hold fast to that hope, knowing that Jesus is the one that gets us there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.